It's good to finally be in a place where you have been in your imagination a number of times. Dan and Sharon have talked about their engagement here. And of course, I knew this congregation even before part of this congregation that was part of the um, uh, uh, congregation here that once upon a time was pastored by Joe Cutter. Joe Cutter and I go way back, and I haven't seen him in a long time, but this place reminds me of Joe. text from Ephesians. I therefore the prisoner in the Lord. A whole lot of scripture written in prison. I beg you to lead a life worthy of calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Abba of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gifts, not according to our portfolio return this week. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. Another way to translate this when we speak of Jesus as Lord, we are saying all other lording is now over. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into the one who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promoting the body's growth in building itself up in love. These are the words of Scripture. May they become the Word of God even today and even here. Knowing what to do or say in any, any given moment depends a lot on assessing what season it is, what time it is. And there are three ways, I would say, characterize where we are now here in this moment that are our seasonal clues. The very first one is to commemorate the ministries of Dan and Sharon Buttry. Just this past week, as some of you know, they officially, and I underscore officially, retired from their careers as global consultants for justice and peace with the American Baptist Church's Board of International Ministries. The truth is, retiring is not the same word. They are retreading. A career is not the same thing as a vocation. They will, in fact, continue their work on a part-time and volunteer basis. The key difference now is they won't be traveling quite as frequently and they won't be getting a salary. How would you sum up their work, which in missiological history is unique in the history of the world? If 
as I believe Jesus' commandment to love enemies is the very heart of his teaching, then teaching people how to do that in very practical ways ought to be the heart of the missionary enterprise. As our hearts get disarmed by the grace of God, we teach, practice, and help others carry out disarming activity. Many years ago, I did a um, a basic three-hour workshop to introduce the theory and practice of conflict transformations, language that's not terribly, it's fairly, still fairly recent. It, it builds on some of the other conflict models like conflict mediation, but it takes it a little bit further. When I did this, finished this workshop, uh, including several experiential exercises for people to gain some insight as to what's going on, I got the most enthusiastic response to any such event that I've ever done before or since. One participant actually summed it up in a way that I would like to be written in the sky. Now I think I know a little bit about how to actually make peace rather than simply promote peace. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, the gifts of the Spirit to, for leaders is for equipping the saints for the work of ministry, not simply to promote ministry, but to actually engage in ministry. Dan and Sharon have put a special emphasis in their last five years specifically to train young peacemakers literally from around the world on every continent they know that their legacy will not be their names, but the names of those who follow and continuing on and on and on. Having talented, charismatic leaders is a boon to every movement, but as we all know, it tends to create codependency. Wise leaders know what the seventh century Chinese philosopher uh, Lao Tzu wrote, of all the best leaders when the job is done, when the task is completed, the people would say, look what we have done. That should be every leader's desire is not thanks and honor from the people we train and minister to, but they're saying, look what we are engaging in. But before I continue, let me get one important thing out of the way. To do it, I'm going to talk very specifically to you and to Dan, uh, to you, Dan, and you, Sharon. And this isn't news to you. I'm really saying this because I want everyone else to hear this. In the larger panorama of God's redemptive purpose, today really isn't about you. It's about what the Spirit is doing in your being, in your living, and will continue doing through your lives and the lives of those that you have trained in a world where agony and brutality appears to have the upper hand. Your legacy does not belong to you, but rather to the service and the spirit to whom you have been obedient, and may that be all of our prayer, your leaven for our loaves. 
Knowing you the way I do, I suspect today's special recognition of your lives and ministries actually is a little bit embarrassing. You see, one of the most harmful notions in the history of spiritual formation is the idea that we get extra cookies for our acts of mercy, of charity, of justice. Thinking that reveals that we have not yet fully aligned ourselves with Christ's self-emptying posture in the world. All that we are, all that we do, comes from God and returns to God. Our delight is not in our accomplishments. Our delight is simply knowing that we ourselves are beloved and thus we become beloving presence in the world. And in Darren and Sharon's case, actually practically teaching people how to accomplish, how to work, make that work out. Our delight, the joy that we experience is what sustains us through the difficult and risky business of being a disciple. Jan, as you saying, I couldn't help but remember the line about hope only is given to people with their backs against the wall. That's why it's so difficult often for us to hope, because our security insulates us from that word. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, some of you know her name and legacy. She was revered for her works of mercy in caring for the homeless and hungry, as well as her courageous stands for the for the things that make for peace. She once complained to an adoring journalist who's very affluent in his praise of her. She finally got testy and said, listen, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. Dorothy knew that referring to people as saints can create lots of problems. Putting people on pedestals is one way we avoid the challenges that they present to our lives. The church has been doing that to Jesus for two millennia, lifting him up as an object of devotion, as a way of keeping him at a distance. As Clarence Jordan once said in his colloquial southern accent, we'll worship the hind legs off Jesus and never do a thing he says. Devotion has a way of becoming a substitute for discipleship. One of the markers for this day, today's service is World Communion Sunday, which many churches around the world celebrate to underscore our commitment to the larger body of Christ. I can't think of a more appropriate occasion for celebrating Dan and Sharon's ministries than this. Surely one of the things the Spirit has done through them is help us in the believing community here in the U.S. to break through our self-imposed quarantine and isolation from the rest of the world. Our wealth insulates us from much of the agony of the rest of the world. A tsunami in Indonesia less than two weeks ago has killed well over 800 people, and most of us have not even noticed that on the news. It's been said, what you see depends on where you stand. 
people like Sharon and Dan, and I have no doubt there are others here as well, have helped the church in the U.S. to migrate a bit from our self-enclosure, bringing to life the stories of people at great distance, stories that include immeasurable beauty and courage and compassion, as well as suffering and deprivation. Roman Catholic Bishop, Archbishop Christoph Muzaribwi of the Democratic Republic of Congo once wrote, there are things that can only be seen with eyes that have cried. Keep this fact in mind, the very first time in Scripture, Exodus 3, where God is named is in response to the cries of the Hebrew slaves under Pharaoh's control. If the church is to be the church, we must locate ourselves in compassionate proximity to where the world is coming apart. And not just in Africa or Asia or Latin America, but here in Royal Oak, in metropolitan Detroit, Establishing companionship with those who have been traumatized, who have no place at the bounty of the table, is not just a biblical mandate. This relocation commitment is actually how we learn to read the Bible. We cannot read the Bible apart from the cries of those who suffer. This relocation is how we learn what it is that we need to know as people of faith. <clears throat> in my region of southern Appalachia in the mountains, when you talk on a cell phone, you're liable to hear someone say, well, I'm about to go around the mountain, so if I get cut off, I'll call you when I get to the other side. One of the things we do in the church is ask, what are the mountains in getting in the way from us hearing what the Spirit is saying to us? and then figuring out how to relocate ourselves so that signal becomes clearer. Putting ourselves in compassionate proximity with the marginalized is not a moral demand. It's how we actually come to know about God, about Jesus' redemptive mission, about the Spirit's guiding presence. It's how we learn who we are and to whom we belong the work of justice, the pursuit of peace is a reflexive response to the act of doxology which we sang just a few minutes ago. It's an act of praise lived out, incarnated in the world, praising God and lifting those who suffer, belong together and cannot be separate. So, we're gathered here today to give thanks to God that the Spirit continues to commission the work like the work Dan and Sharon have done and, in fact, will continue doing so. And we're here on World Communion Sunday to reaffirm our commitment to the larger body of Christ, a body which we need far more than it needs us, by the way. But there's one other point of reference I want to suggest we're coming up at the end of this month in an, what used to be called the ancient Christian tradition of Hallowtide. We popularly know the first day of Hallowtide as Halloween, the October 31st cultural tradition of Halloween, of trick-or-treating and 
eating too much candy is rooted historically in the church's Hallowtide season. What we now call Halloween used to be known as All Hallows' Eve, when the church remembered those whose physical presence has passed, followed then by All Saints' Day and All Souls' Day, a a three-day tritum is the old-fashioned word. I don't have any hope anymore that we'll ever recover Halloween to its original meaning, but I do hope that you'll put All Saints' Day on your calendar. Gratefully, Dan and Sharon aren't dead yet, and today is not a funeral, but today is good to remember this little formula. Just as Jesus helps us put a face on God and on God's salvific purpose, so also the saints help us put a face on Jesus. And so we look through these various prisms to see who it is that God actually is. Of course, the the Apostle Paul didn't reserve sainthood for those who had died. Earlier in the text, I read his admonition, the purpose of the church is to equip the saints living now, meaning, hold your breath on this one, we are all called to sainthood. Woo! Is that in the shiver of down your spine, because we have a terrible image of saints. (laughs) In fact, it was St. Teresa of Avila, the 16th century Spanish mystic who wrote, from somber, serious, sullen saints, save us, O God. Most of us know too much about each other and about ourselves to ever apply for sainthood. (laughs) Thank you. I'd like, not like to do that. But as another of our ancient saints said, St. Augustine, there is no saint without a past and no sinner without a future. Thanks be to God. So, yes, I've traveled all the way from the mountains of western North Carolina to tell you this. God wants each and every one of you to pursue sainthood. I'm not talking about fame and notoriety. The overwhelming percentage of saints don't have fan bases or publicity agents. I'm not suggesting you travel the world. There are plenty of saintly callings right here in your neighborhoods. Not talking about getting your picture in the paper or interviewed on TV or lining up a publishing contract. Earlier this year, I stumbled across a podcast by a journalist by the name of Rosalind Bentley journalist um, by trade, lived in Atlanta, Miss Bentley had uncovered the fact that some of her family history included Aunt Lucy in Albany, Georgia. She was among those little-known African-American women who fed and housed and hosted innumerable leaders and participants in the modern civil rights movement. Back then, African-American visitors to the city couldn't simply check into the local Holiday Inn or pause for a meal at any local restaurant or cafe. Although severely restricted by laws and social convention in the roles they could play, they did what they could. Bentley unearthed the stories of countless African-American women who served behind the scenes, out of the spotlight, in crucial ways that kept the movement fed 
and rested and welcomed. St. Teresa knew about this because she wrote, Christ moves among the pots and pans. Saints never set out to be saints. They set out to be faithful. Only a tiny, tiny, tiny handful of their names are ever known publicly then or now. The saints of bygone days don't wear golden crowns or sit on lofty perches mouthing caustic comments about how poorly we yet mortal souls measure up to the glories of the past. They too knew about keeping hope alive while also getting dinner on the table. Faucets fixed, clothes washed, and budgets balanced. The saints also endured wistful nights and wasted days. They had knees that ached in cold weather, and sometimes they spoke sharp words to people they love, sometimes even to God. Chances are you will never enter a lion's den or travel through a war zone or hear a prison door close behind your act of conscience. Mostly you don't get to custom custom design the witness you bear, the woe you endure, or the promises you make to mend the world as it crosses your path. By and large, you weigh the choices that come your way without fanfare or stardom's spotlight or even angels whispering in your ear. Saintly work is more common than you think. Let me close by referencing this painting by Cuban artist Lazaro Caballo. Do we have that shot? Maybe not. Um, with Lazaro's pres- permission, I have given a piece of artwork to Sharon and Dan in a reprint of this painting to commemorate the transition in their lives. The painting I'll describe to you is, is uh, uh, brilliant colors of a, a woman standing facing four men, uh, and according to Lazaro, the woman is Mary Magdalene, who, as you know, was the first witness to the resurrection and thus the first Christian evangelist. And when she went to tell the men, they did not believe her. Can you imagine that? I know this story because this artwork was used for the logo of a training of 50 women prison chaplains going on, just finished on Friday in Cuba. And I know that because my wife is there on the leadership team helping to train these women chaplains. When he sent me the art, Lazaro um, uh, gave me, I asked him, he gave me permission to use this to, to give to you and Dan, by the, to you and Sharon, you and Dan, by the way. The Holy Spirit provokes saintliness from the least expected people, and sometimes at the oddest moments, and in the context some people deem the most hopeless, we Or to be like Jesus, though, believe the women. We are to be like Mary, testify.
Go from this house of grace knowing that saintliness is more common than you think. It is grace that frees us from the grip of fear. In the world, we are told over and over and over again that you earn, that you get what you earn, and you keep what you get. That's not how God works. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. That is to say, beyond our management and control and merit. And the fruits you bear belong to the community for its upbuilding, not for building up your personal little spiritual stock portfolio, but for the building of the whole body, each part working properly, promoting the body's growth in building itself up in love. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ken. And so, Father, as he even gave that illustration of us being attuned to your spirit and knowing the mountains that get in that way, oh, Father. May we be able to hear clearly your invitation to join with you in your work. And may we be willing to step into it wherever you might lead us, knowing that it is a downward movement with the poor and the hurting as you showed it yourself. And we've seen it modeled in Dan and Sharon. Come, Holy Spirit. Animate our bodies, Lord, to follow you in your work. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.